Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sunday, February 18th, 2024. I'm Jared Halpern. The migrant crisis at the border was front and center in a special election flipping a Republican House seat to the Democrats. They do think that this shows that if you find the right candidate, you find the messaging that fits the area, they might be able to push through. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Millions of dollars spent on political ads and millions more to go. You may see more or less of them this presidential election year, depending on where you live. But even if you grow a bit tired of them, do they work? Campaigns advertise for a reason, and that is they recognize that if they don't articulate a message and and distribute it broadly, uh, then they are at a disadvantage to somebody who does. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. House Speaker Mike Johnson's job will get even more challenging. A special election in New York last week flipped a House seat to the Democrats. Former Congressman Tom Suozzi will return to the House after defeating Republican Mozzie Pillup in the race needed to fill the vacancy left by the expulsion of Republican George Santos. We won this race. We, you, won this race. Because we addressed the issues and we found a way to bind our divisions. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre highlighted the Democratic pickup, saying it's more evidence Americans want solutions on the biggest challenges facing the country, like the migrant crisis at the border. Swazi endorsed a bipartisan deal that would have established a new asylum process at the border. And what happened? The people of New York's third district issued a strong repudiation of Republicans who put politics ahead of national security. Now, we've said it before, and it bears repeating. Special elections are just that, special. They're not always predictive of broader trends or future results. Still, Swazi's centrist message is being noted by Democrats across the country. Olivia Beavers covers the Congress for Politico and joined me to share her reporting on how this election could impact the politics and policies coming out of Capitol Hill. The border and immigration were issues because you were sort of seeing the state and this district dealing with uh, migrants being brought in and the state having the resources drained. And Tom Swazi took a pretty moderate approach to it, but he was basically separating himself from President Biden, from other Democrats, and basically saying, we do need to focus on the issue of the border. We do need to handle this. Um, and he also was able to sort of wedge out Philip with saying, look, my Republican opponent wouldn't even support a bipartisan plan. They gave Republicans what they wanted. Uh, largely in the Senate, and they still, she still says she won't support it. And so she won't help with the issue of border and immigration, but I will. I'm willing to reach across the aisle. And, and basically, he kind of, you know, moved away from the party line and was able to get some good feedback from that position. 
It's, I think, an interesting dynamic because I think conventional wisdom for a while has been that the immigration and border issue were going to be uh, probably beneficial to Republicans, especially in a lot of these swingier districts. But this kind of turns that argument on its head, doesn't it? It does. But, you know, if you talk to Democrats and they think that this is sort of a blueprint because this they've been facing the issue of border. Biden is very low in the polls in terms of how he's been handling the border issue. There's been a huge rise and record highs of illegal border crossings. And so Democrats have basically been trying to figure out what their messaging is heading into November. And while this might not be a perfect replica for every sort of, um, you know, swings, swing state race, they do think that this shows that if you find the right candidate, you find the messaging that fits the area, they might be able to push through. And that's what they felt like they found with Tom Swazi, who has been serving in that area for a long time. His dad was even mayor. So he has very deep roots in that space and he knows the area quite well. The day after uh, that that immigration and border deal in the Senate kind of fell apart, President Biden came out here. He said, listen, I'm going to remind Americans every single day who's responsible for this, that it was Republicans that are the reason that we don't have now uh, tougher uh, immigration enforcement and, and border money and, and all of that. Um, is this kind of I mean, is that the pivot there that, that you're kind of talking about, that that Democrats are going to see if they can put Republicans on defense on an issue that, like I said, I think has really kind of put Democrats on on their heels for for much of this year? I don't know if it will necessarily put them on defense so much as sort of give them a an explanation about maybe why the poll numbers why you know they're the crit like a, a response to the criticism that they've been facing about the border um and and that way they can sort of say look we tried to do something and republicans blocked us because they don't want us to succeed in this election year and maybe that will put them sort of on the offense um in some ways but they need to get their their numbers up in the border and um, i'm not sure if that gives them sort of a winning argument versus just a rebuttal in this case I know you do a lot of reporting on House Republican leadership. What was their read on on why they lost this seat? It, so it kind of depended who you ask. I talked to Richard Hudson, who's the head of the House GOP campaign arm, and he basically pointed to the amount of money that Democrats were willing to spend. There was about 14, 15 million poured in from Democrats in addition to some out, outside spending. And they compared to their eight, um, eight million. And so that's a huge difference. It's a very expensive media market. And he praised uh, the candidate that they had, Mazi Phillip. But what other people kind of criticized was maybe she wasn't the right candidate. And some of the outside the Hill sources that I talked to, I asked, I said, what's what are you surprised? And And one answer I got back from a you know, a Republican who's very involved in New York said, no one's surprised. So I think they saw the writing on the wall. And this has been a seat that they were really worried about keeping control of, which is why you saw leadership and, and different Republicans pushing back against the idea of voting to expel George Santos in the first place, because they knew that this would be extremely difficult to hold on. And when Democrats rallied around Tom Swazi, that just really changed the calculus because he has huge name ID there. Whereas Philip is a little bit more of a newcomer in politics, and she shied away from these big events and, and media and had a very kind of different approach in terms of how her campaign was run. Does, um, you know, you mentioned sort of Swazi and his name recognition and all of that. That that certainly was a big part, I think, of why he was able to, to move forward. 
Um, did this kind of cause some hand wringing uh, about, you know, the expulsion of, of George Santos or conversely, how much did, did Santos kind of loom large over this race? In other words, you know, were, were voters in this district kind of like it was part of their turnout to, to kind of, you know, have their say in, in the whole, uh, you know, George Santos era of of uh, their district? As I think one um, one Republican put it, the George Santos stench was still prevailing when voters went to cast their ballot. Um, he he was very scandal ridden, and I think that there was a lot of fatigue um, that impacted the voters in terms of going and, and supporting Philip. I, there were, there were also very kind of other serious factors like the weather. There was a big snowstorm too right. that um, people were pointing to as impacting maybe turnout in such a race. But um, Tom Swazi also did much better than I think. You know, the prognosticators had predicted he, he won by eight points. And before that, they were basically saying, oh, this is neck and neck. Um, so, you know, Democrats are really doing a huge victory lap. But also, as for George Santos, you did hear people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and those who are very outspokenly against um, voting to kick George Santos out before he faced a conviction. The Freedom Caucus types, the kind of more people you might be like otherwise genuinely surprised that they were. Um, defending sort of the centrist New York uh, mm -hmm. Republican, they were the ones who were a little bit angry about the, the the Republicans who led the push to oust George Santos. So let's talk about what the, the House of Representatives now looks like. Obviously, this cuts even uh, further into that very slim margin that the Republicans have in the House of Representatives. Had yep. this election, I guess, happened a few days earlier, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas may not have even been impeached because they would not have the votes to do that once Tom Suozzi takes office. So what is the I mean, how does does Speaker Mike Johnson plan to, like, govern with uh, an even slimmer majority? And, and does that maybe suggest uh, movement on some of these bipartisan uh, negotiations that have been happening? So some Republicans joke, they're like, well, if it's a three seat majority or two seat majority, it doesn't make that much difference. But you only have to really look for the Mayorkas impeachment vote to realize yeah. three <laughs> does make a difference, actually. And yeah. um, now they're losing that seat. So they, they have um, there were th just for um, the listeners, there were three Republican votes that basically blocked Mayorkas from being impeached the first time because Republicans also miscalculated what the votes were going to be that day. The and they had to vote on yeah. it twice, <laughs> yeah. which created a, a pretty embarrassing moment for Republicans. And that's in their own words. Um, you know, when you use the word plan, what is Mike Johnson's plan for governing? I, I think that that changes daily because when you're in this sort of very thin majority one Republican can basically take it hostage and, you know, create a situation where they want something entirely separate to be focused on and they can just withhold their vote. They can prevent a rule from passing, which is basically so another vote can happen on a priority. And and basically you're kind of in a in a position where each way the speaker turns, he's basically facing threats that if you do this, we might do motion to vacate or we might withhold our vote or we might take this deal. So governing is exceptionally hard and he's basically going to have to try to choose if he he's going to upset his right flank or he upsets his centrists or uh, and it just sort of depends on the issue that he, he has to pick that that Sophie's choice on. What What is the likelihood we see another motion to vacate or, or how secure, I guess, is a better way that phrase this question, how secure is is Mike Johnson's speaker uh, speakership? So it depends 
who you ask. And this is something that I think about all the time because you hear a lot of bluster around the motion of 8K. Um, and sometimes you, you kind of can discern that it's just more maybe marketing or a thinly veiled threat that they don't really need to act on. But other times it starts building and, and you know, some of the very conservative sources I have say, I give them five months. But other Republicans quickly dismiss that. They say, we wouldn't be dumb enough to do that right before an election. We don't have a plan B of who would be named leader as the um, the last speakership race. Well, they didn't showed. have a plan B the last time either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they also, you know, some of them argue and admit they don't really know how the minds of their other Republican colleagues work. So where, where they might dismiss it now as a very terrible decision, that might not mean that someone might not pull the trigger and get help with Democrats to oust Johnson. So it's really hard to tell how serious these threats are, but he's increasingly getting the motion of AK threats. Like Warren Davidson was this week um, talking about the national security supplemental. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been about talking about the Ukraine aid. So you know, it's it's a new person sort of each week, it seems like. And maybe that will pick up as time goes on. And you mentioned, obviously, uh, the role that Democrats will play here. Obviously, they, they gain a seat here they they add uh, to their to their roster. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean for Hakeem Jeffries? Um, he's kind of been, <laughs> I think, you know, watching. I mean, I, I don't even know if he could have predicted uh, how challenging or, or unique this uh, this job would be for him is kind of replacing you know, Nancy Pelosi, but um, there, there's got to be a relationship between him and Mike Johnson, right? What, what does that look like now a, a few months into uh, this new speakership? I think it's amicable. I mean, Kevin McCarthy worked pretty hard to have a strong relationship. Well, they seem with to Jeffries. get along pretty well. Yeah, I was going to say McCarthy and Jeffrey seem to get along real well. Well, that also became came after McCarthy and Pelosi had an extremely toxic, um, you know, kind of vitriolic disdain for each other. So um, McCarthy tried to start this next um, relationship with the Democratic leader on a different foot. Um, I think it's amicable, but um, you you sort of are finding Johnson just really trying to figure out the job. Um, and he's he's trying to negotiate in good faith with Democrats. But there was this moment, I think, um, where uh, they were doing another short-term government spending plan and Freedom Caucus members walked in and were urging him to change the plan and the agreement that he had basically made with Democratic leaders. And that would have really disturbed sort of, I think, the the across the aisle communications if, or contact, uh, relationship if right. he had done that. So um, at the moment, I think it's just sort of a, a baseline cordial relationship where um, Jeffries is probably having the most fun in the minority that he could possibly have. And that's <laughs> what one Democrat joked. It's like, it's basically like there are two minorities right now. So if we have to be in a minority, we might as well be in this one. <laughs> um, I mean, would he, would he come to the, he obviously did not come to the aid of, of Kevin McCarthy during that, um, motion to vacate. W- would Democrats come to the aid of, of Johnson if that came to a head again? I'm skeptical that they would. I mean, uh, why would you stop sort of your the party that you're trying to oust from the majority from shooting themselves in the foot and creating more chaos? Why would they try to protect a leader and then have to go back to their home districts and explain that they voted for Mike Johnson for speaker? 
um, when they could have been supporting a Democrat. So it's a tough sell, even if there's sort of rumblings here and there, reports that Democrats would um, possibly vote to protect him. If Hawking Jeffries and Democratic leadership said you are not going to vote for um, Johnson as speaker, I, my, my bet would be that they do not support Johnson for speaker. And you would see a similar case like Kevin McCarthy, even though um, there is still this sort of infamous moment in the speakership race where Kevin McCarthy went on TV and just bashed and blamed Democrats right before he might have been able to have them protect him. So uh, maybe maybe Johnson will will learn a lesson from that as well. I will finish with this, and, and it gets to the governance because uh, the House is um, gone again. The Senate is gone for a few weeks. What is the likelihood that we get a CR, some sort of spending deal in place here before a shutdown? What is it, March 1st? Yep, yep, March 1st. Um, you know, we have very limited days in terms of the House being in to legislate. I think you're going to see another short-term spending bill. Uh, Mike Johnson sounded optimistic uh, about getting it done. I think a lot more other people on the Hill are pessimistic of of them not doing a short-term spending bill. Um, did I say that right? Um, they think that it will be a short-term spending bill, even if Republicans want to go a different path um, and, and do individual appropriations bills. So um, we're probably seeing uh, another kind of big moment coming up for Speaker Johnson in terms of you know his his safety and security in the in the in the, yeah, so the, the, the these spending bills have sort of been what what uh, Republicans have measured their speakers by. So it will be uh, <laughs> an important moment to be sure. Listen, Olivia, I appreciate the uh, the insight on this election and kind of what it means moving forward for the House of Representatives. Always uh, uh, enjoy reading your reporting as well at Politico. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Every two or four years when we have elections, the amount of money spent on political ads goes up. And this year, one major advertising company, Group M, is projecting around $16 billion in spending on political ads, up to more than $17 billion possibly if you include in direct mailers and out-of-home digital billboards. That's according to Axios. And that's a higher amount than others predict. Even if you don't live in a state that holds the first presidential nominating contest or a swing state, you may have already seen some political ads. It's strictly up to you. American Value 2024 is responsible for the contents of this advertisement. After that ad aired for independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. during the Super Bowl, he wrote a post on X apologizing. The ad was originally used in the 1960 presidential campaign for his uncle, John F. Kennedy. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said he was sorry if it hurt some of his family members, that it was not created by his campaign, but by the super PAC supporting him. The price tag there, $7 million. Even before the New Hampshire primary, where she finished 11 points behind former President Trump, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley's campaign placed a $4 million ad buy in South Carolina. The chaos that surrounds him is bad enough. But what is Trump saying he'll actually do in office? A 10% across the board tax increase, more record-breaking debt. 
a Russian victory that will bring more war. So do these ads work? Does it depend on the voter, the candidate, both? Well, it depends on the quality of the ad, but, but the answer is yes. Carl Rove is a former presidential campaign manager and Fox News contributor. Uh, you can see it. The, the, you can see you can see proof of that in the fact that campaigns that advertise more tend to be campaigns that win more. Okay, um, I, I was reading there was a study. I guess they did this out of the the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. They they did some of the math. They looked at I think it was political races in like sixteen hundred counties. The results, they pulled the results. They found if a candidate increased positive ads by 1%, voter turnout rose by just 0.03%. And if they increased negative ads by the same amount, voter turnout dropped, but only by 0.007%. That, they, they argue, as infinitesimal as that sounds, could matter in a tight race. Oh, absolutely. And and look, I think that probably minimizes the impact of advertising. Again, you know, the campaigns advertise for a reason. And that is they recognize that if they don't articulate a message and, and distribute it broadly, uh, then they are at a disadvantage to somebody who does. Uh, because a great many people don't vote. And a great many people vote when they get motivated. And the, you know, advertising can both discourage people from voting for your opponent, but they can also encourage people to vote for you. Think about the presidential races since 1996. Every year we've seen an increase in voter turnout, except for a brief hiatus and a small hiatus in 2012. But otherwise, from you know 2000 is bigger turnout than 96, 2004 bigger than 2000, 2008 bigger than 2004, mm. 2012 slightly below 2008, which was driven by you know, this incredible election, which people said we've got a chance to create history, but rises again at 16 and rises again at 20. And uh, in talk about talk about negative advertising at 20, <laughs> uh, both campaigns were taking a two by four to the other. And yet, unlike the Kellogg study, uh, you know, turnout increased. Well, and this study also found negative ads um, had, and they put it this way, had a bigger effect on voter share that increasing negative ads by 1% boosted the percent of people voting for the sponsoring candidate of the negative ad by 0.025%. Positive commercials were linked to a smaller increase. So it, 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 to your point, it sounds like even, even in a study like this, they're finding that negative ads are more effective, even if even if we hear from people in Iowa or New Hampshire or wherever that they're turned off by it. Yeah. Well, it turns out that, that I, I think that, and I don't want to be dismissive of academic research because I like it a lot. And I think it does. It, it is, <laughs> But think about how most campaigns begin. Most campaigns begin by introducing a candidate with positive advertising and then end the campaign with contrast or negative advertising. That is to say, they start by introducing somebody so that you get to a point where you say, they have credibility with me, I trust what they have to say, I'm sort of inclined to be for them, but I need information in order to make a decision. Why not the other person? And so that's where negative advertising comes into play. But negative advertising is far more impactful and persuasive if it comes from a source where people have gained a certain amount of confidence. And that's why most campaigns start with, you know, introductory ads that sort of create the help, help people understand the persona of the candidate and, uh, and what their background is. 
I guess also I, I wonder your thoughts, Carl, about the impactfulness of ads. I hear you saying they're quite impactful or we wouldn't necessarily be spending so much of our campaign dollars on them. Um, but I think for those of us who pay attention to politics, it seems as though people are largely entrenched, right? And so that's why we look to these swing states and look to these swing state voters, which seem to be an ever you know, decreasing pool of people as time goes on. Is that just a sense or are there really that many people who are truly swayed and who are not so politically entrenched now and, and on their opposing sides already? Yeah, well, we do live in a tribal moment where people feel that they are a member of a tribe, Democrat or Republican, and we rally to the support of the standard bearers of our party. You attack us, even if we don't like the person you're attacking, we rally to them. And that is a tribal moment. And and we've been here before. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is not an unusual thing. It's happened before in American politics. But yes, there are a smaller number of swing voters. You go to the 1990s and, and think about this. Ross Perot gets one out of every five Americans vote for a third party candidate. Big swing in 1992. In the last election, 1.8% of the voters cast a presidential ballot for a third party candidate. So there is... You know, that's a that's a rough measure of pliability in the electorate. What 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 political professionals will tell you is that the number of true swing voters is is small, 10 to 15 percent of the electorate. It used to be 25 to 30 percent of the electorate. Mm. Uh, but as as people become more into the tribal moment, they have become less willing to ticket split, to split their ballot between some candidates who are from one party and other candidates from another party. That, but mm. ironically enough, that makes swing voters even more important. Yeah. Because if everybody, it's everybody's, you know, everybody you know, puts on the shirt of their team and goes onto the field and you only got, you know, the, the contest will be decided by 10 or 12 percent of the electorate that doesn't wear a shirt. Or if it wears a shirt, it doesn't wear it, you know, in every contest. That makes those people more important. And then there's a second thing that this obscures, and that is. Uh, not everybody votes every election time. That is to say, the electorate doesn't consist solely of people who turn out each and every election or turn out every each and every presidential election. So identifying low propensity voters and aiming your advertising at them uh, uh, is is another important component of a modern of a modern political campaign. Right. So, in other words, ads are not just about. Or, or the campaign effort at large, not just solely advertising, but the entire effort isn't just about persuading the persuadable. It's also about motivating the base um, and getting that well, turnout up. Yeah, no, not motivating the, motivating the base, motivating the low propensity voter. The low propensity, right. The base, the base of the people who basically say, I'm going to vote. I'm voting. I'm a loyal party member. I'm a loyal Democrat. I'm a loyal Republican. I'm, the odds of me turning out are very high. What you're looking at is a person who says, well, I'm a nominal Republican or a nominal Democrat, but I, I float in and out of this. I, I, you know, the last 10 elections, I may have voted in four or six, uh, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm not. You can't count on me turning out to vote unless you give me a, a reason and B encouragement. And so advertising plays a role, not the only role. Uh, you have to have contact with the voter in other way, whether it's personal, somebody in neighbor to neighbor, somebody knocking on their door. Um texting, mail, phones. I mean, there are other ways to communicate digitally, but, you know, advertising is important to, to reach both groups because if you're going to win, you have to do better among swing voters 
and low propensity voters than you might otherwise do. Let me, before I let you go, get some analysis from you on the these particular campaigns on the Republican side we've been seeing thus far, because it it, it appears that Ron DeSantis spent, you know, over one hundred and fifty million dollars um, between, I guess, his campaign and the and the super PAC, right? Um, and over thirty million of that dollars was spent on advertising, and he came in second in in just one contest, right? What is it fair to to point that out or? Is this a very unique case in which you're going up against Trump, who I guess is, I guess, a semi-incumbent, right? And so you have to go all out or go home, or, or is like a Nikki Haley playing it better, having enough money to play for a longer period of time than maybe how Ron DeSantis played his cash? Yeah, well, a, a very good question and uh, and and a complex question if you dig into it. Look, I would make the, I, I would pick up on the one point you made. Donald Trump is in essence the incumbent. He's the former president. He's running again. And so you really have to take him on. And we did have two divergent approaches. One of one approach was I'm going to I'm going to muscle up and spend a bunch of money to advertise and organize. Uh, and uh, and Ron DeSantis fell flat. I mean, he came in second in Iowa, but that was the end. And Nikki Haley, you're right, has been more circumspect in her spending and as a result has enough to go not only from Iowa, but to New Hampshire and on to South Carolina, and maybe even given the pace of her fundraising on to March 5th, regardless of what happens in South Carolina. If she comes in, her her marker is, I want to do better in South Carolina than I did in New Hampshire. So if she does get better than 43%, that's going to be the sort of moral victory that allows her to go on mm-hmm. to to, uh, to the March 5th primaries with 13 states of 750 plus delegates. So, um, you know, it, 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 different strategies. Uh, presidential campaigns are a little bit different in one way. Uh, if you're running for the Senate or governor or Congress or lesser office, we don't read and hear and learn as much about you as we do about presidential candidates. So, uh, you know, there was a movie uh, called The Candidate starring Robert Redford. And the underlying theme of it was they took this erstwhile environmental attorney in California and through nefarious means and through fancy advertisements made him the United States Senator. And it was sort of like, you know, uh, we fooled the voters. We, uh, we phonied up things. We made the ads that really didn't depict him, but depicted what we thought they wanted. And we tricked him into voting for him. The way to think about a presidential campaign is more akin to the childhood story of the emperor's new clothes. At the end of the parade, like it or not, we're going to see the emperor, the presidential, each presidential candidate as they really are, hopefully on their best day or better day. But we're going to see them as they are. And my sense is that one of the things that Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, suffered was he, he was not an approachable. You know, he's not the kind of guy you'd say, God, uh, you know, he's like my neighbor that I like standing at the fence talking about, you know, solving all the world's problems or having a beer on the back porch or to taking our kids for burgers. I mean, he was he was aloof and hard to get to know. And that that was a problem. Advertising can't necessarily solve that problem. Advertising can reinforce the reality of who you are, but it cannot create a separate reality uh, Mm. that's different and apart from who you are, particularly when you're running for president. Might be able to get away with it with lesser offices where people don't have as much. They don't read as much. They don't absorb as much. They don't talk as much. They don't think as much about them. And even then, the amount of time that we spend thinking about presidential candidates out of a given week 
for the ordinary voter is not a whole heck of a lot. Finally, Carl, I'm sure I don't know if you saw the RFK ad, uh, the RFK Jr. ad that aired during the, yeah, the Super I Bowl. Did. I guess it I was yeah. seven million dollars or something spent. He apologized afterward, though, and he said, "I'm sorry that that wasn't my campaign. That was the Super PAC or the the PAC that supports me." Which kind of gets to another interesting point in time, right? We've entered this age of massive super PAC spending. I mean, Ron DeSantis, uh, a lot of his campaign was handled by his super PAC. Um, They don't obviously have the same finance rules and and donation caps. It it seems to have this power now. Um, Was that money well spent, misspent on on one ad for an independent candidate? Is he unique because he is running as an independent with the Kennedy name. And so you can't really compare that kind of super PAC spending to a, anybody else's kind of spending. Like, what is your takeaway? That was about the dumbest $7 million I've ever <laughs> seen. Look, uh, advertising depends upon repetition, repetition, repetition. The ad that they mimicked, this famous ad from the 1960 campaign, was not run one time. It was run hundreds of times. Uh, you have to get what's called a certain number of points. That is to say, grips, gross rating points. That's basically a thousand gross rating points suggests that the average television viewer might see your ad eight or nine or 10 times. And you need to have run the ad again and again in order to drive home the message. They spent seven, They, in, in, in my opinion, they flushed $7 million because that's not, you know, First of all, it was a, it was derivative. They used a famous ad that only political junkies like you and me know about. And, of course, every Kennedy family member knew about it, which is why he felt he had to apologize, because it offended them that the, his super PAC was taking the ad from their forebearer, John F. Kennedy Jr., in 1960, and to applying it to Robert Kennedy Jr. in, 19, you know, in 2024. They're, they're, so they, he, his own family members probably gave him hell about it, which is why he felt compelled to uh, to, to apologize. But... It was a unique thing at the time. Use cartoons, which had been used in 1952 by Dwight Eisenhower, to have a great little, uh, you know, uh, limerick, you know, Kennedy, 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 Kennedy. But, you know, think about that. That was 64 years ago. Right. Who remembers that? Nobody except, you know, political junkies in the Kennedy family. And they've spent $7 million to buy an ad that's going to be seen one time in the midst of a you know, sort of flurry of ads uh, at the Super Bowl. So stupid. Better to have spent $7 million on advertising that was repetitious with hundreds of ads being run in, mm. you know, in a battleground state or even run on a national cable network. This, this was, this is one, the, the, there are good things and bad things about Super PACs. They're a reality. Uh, may not like it, but it's a reality. Well, maybe they think that you and I just simply talking about it after the game was worth $7 million. <laughs> if one conversation is had that, you know, that, that other people they, listen they, to, they, maybe it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if, if, if it's useful to call them stupid, I'll call them stupid one last time. Carl Rove, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown, House Republican Whip Tom Emmer joins the podcast to talk about his shrinking majority in the debate over funding the border, Ukraine and Israel. And Dana Perino celebrates President's Day with author Jared Cohen about his new book about the life of presidents once they leave the White House. Until then, thanks for listening. 
I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.